Can I have you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 22? We are in the middle of what we call the Passion Week, uh, the week that is going to lead us to the cross where Christ will die for the sins of his people. It started with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the cheers of tens of thousands of people. Uh, it moved on toward a cleansing of the temple, toward Jesus driving out the money changers and those who are buying and selling and Jesus taking up residence in the temple and teaching. And that's where we're at in the middle of that context. Jesus is uh, occupying his temple. He has restored what it ought to look like. It is now a place where the Son of God teaches the truth of God to the people that are coming to him that would ordinarily maybe not even see, be seen as fit to come into the temple. Um, and in the context of that, he's approached and he's challenged first about his authority, and that's when he doesn't give that answer. Instead of answering where he gets his authority from, he turns the question back on the religious leaders, and then he goes on to give that series of three parables. Three parables in a row that deal directly, not with his authority, but with their rejection. And they begin to peel back the layers and expose really the hardness of their heart, not only toward him, but toward God uh, as a whole. Their entire corrupt worship that they would try to approach him with. And last week we went over the third of those parables, the parable of the wedding feast. The invitations go out from the king to come to the wedding feast of his son, but those who are originally invited don't come. Some reject the invitation through just apathy. Life is there, and they will go to their businesses and their farms, and they can't be bothered to join the king for his celebration. Some will violently reject and hate the king. They'll even kill his messengers, but the uh, evaluation on that whole group, whether rejecting through apathy or through violent hatred, is that they are unworthy of the invitation. And so the invitation goes out far and wide to the masses at the wide places in the road, and the people come. Good and bad, they come. Moral and upright and a little bit shady, they come. Because just being on the A-list doesn't make you worthy of the kingdom. In fact, this is a kingdom that is composed only of the unworthy. Everyone who comes into the kingdom of this king comes with the knowledge that whether they were seen as clean or seen as dirty, whether they were seen as reputable or whether they were seen as somebody that polite people wouldn't talk to, everybody who comes into this kingdom understands that they don't deserve to be there. And then we saw that sobering reminder of the man who would come into the presence of the king, uh, but he wasn't clothed with the proper garments. For whatever reason, he thought the party sounded good, but he was going to come on his own terms. And it's sobering because we're reminded that to be in the presence of the king means that you come the king's way. There's only one way, and the king sets the standard for how you will approach him. And I think last week sat heavy on a lot of us. Because while we can't really identify with hatred, most of us probably can't identify with murder, most of us can identify with apathy. While most of us can't identify with a violent rejection of the king, we can certainly identify with the desire to come to the king on our own terms. And uh, so here's all that I ask, is if last week stung a bit in certain areas, um, like it did to me, that we don't leave it there. That hopefully, like every week, we don't just leave it as conviction and then move on with the rest of our lives, but uh, talk to someone else about it. Bring your repentance and your confession to someone else who will love you enough to hold you accountable toward moving toward obedience as God has called us to. Who will remind us that the kingdom that we're pursuing is worth all of our time, all of our energy, all of our effort, all of the passion that we have within us 
to pursue, that the kingdom is worth laying aside everything associated with this temporary fallen world. Find somebody who will love you enough to consistently move you back toward that truth. Problem is, we still live in this world even while we wait for that kingdom. So how do we relate to the authorities of this world? Well, that's most of where our challenge goes today. We're thinking through uh, what it means to give rightly to God and to the government. What belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar. And so if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 22. And our text today is going to be verse 15 through 22, but I'll just read the first part of that. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, this is what God's word says. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that long for a kingdom, but live under the authority of earthly kings, not monarchs in a sense, but certainly authorities that you've placed over us. And Lord, we recognize that it's a constant struggle in our life as to what it will look like to live under authority. And whether we have that in the sphere of government, in the sphere of politics, in the sphere of work, in the sphere of the church or the home, it is something that we struggle with. So Lord, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Open our eyes so that we might understand the authority of the king who calls us to lives of submission and then give us wisdom in how to walk through that in a way that's obedient. Uh, Lord, we need your help to do these things. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're not a people that like to be shown up in general. When someone makes a spicy comment toward us, we are quick to fire back with one of our own. If someone enters into an argument with us, we are not people who generally like to let others have the last word. That starts when we're little. I would always end the argument by saying something as I was going around the corner, uh, maybe just so that my parents could barely hear it, um, or my siblings, or my wife. But whatever, it it carries on. We, We like to be a people who have the last word. And now two weeks ago, Jesus takes a question that he's asked and he turns it and he asks a question of his own that's so precise, that's so finely crafted, that it leaves the religious leaders with absolutely nowhere to go and they're forced to come up with the most humiliating response possible, we don't know. And if that were to happen to you or me, I don't think we would then just say, thank you for the opportunity to learn about humility and the limits of my own understanding, and they certainly do not either. The religious leaders, after having been absolutely humiliated and with their increasing desire to do away with Jesus and their growing hatred of him, uh, they're planning their revenge. You can almost imagine the conversations. Jesus thinks he is so smart, but we collectively must be smarter. Surely there's something that we can say. This time we're going to ask a question that he can't get out of. And now what's going to happen is a series of three challenges to Jesus. He gave us three parables in a row, and now over the next few weeks, we're going to look at three challenges that come in direct response to that. It's very interesting the way that Matthew parallels those. Approached by different groups, and the one today deals with giving to God and giving to government, but it opens with a very particular challenge, and that's what we see starting in verse 15. But before we can understand the challenge, we need to understand the people involved. It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. By this point in the gospel, we know who the Pharisees are. 
The Pharisees are an ultra-religious, very uh, conservative sect of Judaism. They are incredibly concerned with the law and with their obedience to the law. So much so that they not only venerated the law and venerated obedience to the law, but they had created an elaborate system of tradition that surrounded the law so that you couldn't even get close to the law so that you wouldn't break the law. And we know that their religion was one that they were proud to show to others. They lived their religion in a public, external way so that everyone could see what holiness looked like. They despised unclean things. They would have nothing to do with the leper because they might get contaminated with the Samaritan, the Gentile, the outsider, the other, because they were afraid that all of these things might contaminate their purity when we know that Jesus says that contamination and impurity really start in the heart. And they stood consistently on the receiving end of the condemnation of Jesus not only throughout all Matthew's Matthew's gospel, but certainly over these last three parables, they would have found themselves on the wrong end of those teaching segments. And so now they decide that they are going to have themselves a huddle. And they're going to go and they plot against him. But the problem is they can't challenge what Jesus does. Because what he does is unmistakably powerful. And they can't really challenge why he's doing these things because the crowd is on his side and so really their only hope is to get him to say something to trip him up and so that's why they go and they seek to entangle him or entrap him in his words but they don't come alone it says they sent their disciples to him so really the pharisees don't even come directly they send their disciples they send the pharisees in training and they send them along with the herodians and we read right by that and it doesn't really matter because we don't know who the herodians are but we're supposed to read that the disciples of the pharisees and the herodians come together and we should say well that sounds odd Because the disciples of the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're not friends. What name do you see in Herodians? Herod is right in there. These are the people that have aligned themselves with the Herods, with the ruling family. They have aligned themselves with the puppet government set up under Rome because it was politically expedient, because it advanced their career, and because, quite frankly, it made them a lot of money. Now, if you're a Pharisee, who hates the idea of a Gentile ruling over God's people, and you're a Herodian who will do whatever he can just to get along under Caesar's system, how much do you think they regularly have in common? So you've got to understand, these are not people who go to potlucks together after uh, Sabbath. It's just not happening. And yet, they've found within them a common enemy in Jesus Christ. And as we know, even from our personal experiences, sometimes it's easier to bond over a common enemy, even over what you hold in common with each other. And for the time being, the threat of the person and the message of Jesus Christ is enough for them to put their differences aside, hold their nose, and work together so that they can destroy him. And where they've been aggressive in the past, this time they're going to come to him with praise Look at verse 16. They sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians, and this is what they're saying. Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully. They call him teacher, and they're right. No one has ever taught like Jesus. They say that he's true, that he teaches the way of God truthfully, and once again, of course, they're right. They don't even realize how right they are. This is Jesus that says, not only I teach the truth, this is Jesus that says, I am the truth. 
I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus not only speaks what is true, but he does. He's the very definition of what is true. There is absolute truth, no matter how unpopular that opinion is, and Jesus is the embodiment of absolute truth. And you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Jesus, you teach the truth. You tell it like it is, and you do that no matter who's listening. You don't care about people. You don't care about wealth. You don't care about appearances. Jesus, you always tell it like it is. And once again, of course that's true. You look all over Matthew's gospel, and you will see Jesus being absolutely consistent with what he says. Whether it's the leper or the blind man or the lame man or the woman or the Samaritan or the Jew or the rich young ruler, the message is always the same. Whether it's the poor or the powerful, whether it's the nobody or whether it's the ruling elite of the temple class, the message is always the same. In fact, the more religiously connected you are, the more harshly Jesus tends to criticize and condemn. But we smell something a little funny here, don't we? Because if you've ever been a child or had a child and you've come up to your parents or if your child comes up to you and says, you know what, Dad, you're just the best dad in the whole world. And, you know, I know all the other guys at school, they've got dads and they're all right, but they're nothing compared to you. You say the right thing all the time. You do the right thing all the time. And, you know, I just, Dad, I'm just so blessed to have you. What's the next words out of my mouth going to be? What do you want and how much does it cost? Because we know that too much flattery is an obvious thing. And we know, because Matthew tells us, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him. We know, because in verse 18, Jesus says, why do you put me to the test, hypocrites? We know because the bulk of Matthew 23 has Jesus condemning these same people for their hypocrisy, uh, that the problem is that it's all just empty, it's vain, it's worthless, it's flattery. But more than that, their actions reveal their heart. Because if they believed what they said, if they believed that Jesus did and said what was true, what would they have been compelled to do? Well, they would have had to follow him, wouldn't they? If he is the one that always says what is true, if everything that he has said is absolutely true, then they would have had to have abandoned everything they known and follow after him. So, of course, it's just plain from looking at their lives and their actions that they have, don't actually believe a word of what they're saying. So why say it? Well, because they've tried the other approach and it didn't work. Because this is what the crowds thought. And remember, in the back of all of this is still their great fear of the crowds that love Jesus. And because I think this would have worked on them. And the Pharisees know about pride and appeals to pride. And I think if someone had come up to a Pharisee or a Pharisee in training and said, you know, you tell it like it is. You always speak the truth. I think they would have really kind of, you know, puffed up under that a little bit. And maybe at the back of their mind is we can't get him in antagonism, but maybe Jesus likes to have his ears tickled a little bit. Maybe if we butter him up, maybe he'll loosen up to the point where he says something uh, without thinking. But what do they ask him? Why is it a problem? What's the problem with the question that they come with? Well, the problem is that it's a simple question without a simple answer. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Their thinking is that they're going to leave him no room to maneuver on this. When we went up to him and we said, what's the source of your authority? That was way too broad. And he was able to get out and around that. We can't do that. This time, yes or no question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or isn't it? There's no sideways maneuvering on this one. Now, they obviously don't mean, is it legal in a legal sense? Is it lawful in the sense of the Roman law? Because not only was it lawful, it was demanded. Caesar demands taxes from his provinces and from his people. There were poll taxes, there's census taxes, there's trade taxes, there's all kinds of taxes. So what they're asking is, is it right under the law of God for us to do this? Is it lawful? Is it expected by God? Is it obedient to God to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus should we give our money to the godless Gentile oppressors? Jesus, you, you don't care about appearances. You tell the truth no matter what. You say what's right no matter who's listening. So Jesus, should we pay these taxes or not? Now they think they have him because although it's a simple question, yes or no, there is no right answer. This might surprise and shock you. But people in first century Judea did not enjoy paying taxes any more than you and I do. And what an appropriate time of the year for us to be working through this passage. And so on the one hand, if Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, he immediately loses popularity with the people. Because many of them are poor. Many of them live continually under the burden of the taxation that's sent from Rome. What had they just been cheering on his way into Jerusalem? Hosanna, save us. Oh, save, save us now, son of David. You are the Messiah. You are the one with the right to rule over Israel. You are the one who can restore Israel to her place of prominence. You are the one who can cast off our great burdens. Hail to you, son of David. And if Jesus comes in, And if the son of David says, pay your taxes to Caesar, it means that he has no plans to get rid of Caesar anytime soon. And if Jesus says yes, he risks turning a significant crowd against him. But what if he goes the other way? But what if he says, don't pay? I think even more than the first option, this is probably what they were hoping for. Because if Jesus says, don't pay, then Rome can take care of their problem for them. Because they had the desire to kill Jesus. They had every motivation and every reason in their minds to do away with this Jesus, the blasphemer. What they didn't have was the authority to do anything about it. Rome does not just let its citizens go around putting people to death. And as it turns out, Rome doesn't really care that some Jews in Jerusalem had their theological toes stepped on by a traveling rabbi from Galilee. Doesn't matter to them. Because you know what Rome doesn't tolerate? A rebel. Rome does not tolerate rebellion within her provinces. It costs a lot of money to run an empire. It demands a certain amount of peace and stability within that empire. And if you begin to refuse to pay taxes, if you're going to be a rebellious people in a rebellious province, Rome will do something about that. And they have done it here. Not too many decades before this, right around uh, 6 AD, a man named Judas from Galilee had decided that he didn't want to pay taxes anymore. And he and his entire group that he got around him were either killed or scattered when Rome intervened. And it's going to happen again. 
The first war between Rome and Judah in AD 66 is over. Guess what? Taxes. And it ends with the destruction, the utter destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. This is not just some tangential point that the Pharisees are bringing in here. This is real life to these people, and they've seen it play out. And if Jesus says, no, don't pay the taxes, then the Herodians have every reason and every ability to go to their people and say, guess what Jesus said? He said we don't have to pay taxes to Rome. And now the Pharisees' problem is taken care of because Rome does their dirty work for them. So it seems like Jesus has been put in this place where there is no right answer. And listen, from a human perspective, there's not. If you are trying to come up with an answer to this question that makes everybody happy, there is no right answer. Fortunately, Jesus is telling the truth all the time and is not interested in making people happy. And so he responds perfectly. And as we move from the challenge, now we're going to see his correction, which I think is probably more far-reaching than most of us realize. And the first thing that we're reminded of here is the clarity that Jesus brings to these situations. Look at verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, he doesn't swoon under their compliments. He doesn't say, oh, gee, guys, me? Come on, come on. I mean, come on. He doesn't say, maybe these guys have finally turned the corner. Maybe they've actually got it right. No, Jesus is aware not only of their intentions, not only because it's patently obvious, but because Jesus is aware of the intentions of men's hearts. He knows when they are flattering, when they are lying. He knows when they are struggling. He knows when there is an honest search for truth, and he knows this this is not it. He says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Not thank you for your inquiry. Not that's a great question. Let me answer that in a three-part sermon. He exposes them for exactly what they are. Why are you putting me to the test? And that's all that this is. This is not a search for truth. This is not a humble request for information that is going to actually impact your obedience. This is simply a test, and you are hypocrites. You are pretending to be one thing when you are something else. You are flattering, and you are pretending to be nice, and you're a bunch of vipers. You are pretending to want knowledge, and you have no interest in it. Now, Jesus is not a stranger to testing. We've seen even when walking in the grain fields on a Sabbath, the Pharisees kind of pop up out of nowhere. They're violating the Sabbath. He's constantly pressed. He's constantly tested. And the fact that he responds rightly to this shouldn't surprise us because we have to remember that he's been tested by somebody far greater than this. The gospel, very, very early in Matthew chapter 4, took us out into the wilderness in Judea where Jesus is tempted by Satan himself where the Son of God, the second Adam, is put to the test, and where the first Adam failed, the second Adam must succeed. The first Adam was tempted in a garden, the Garden of Eden, where he had everything. The second Adam, which is what Paul calls him in Romans, is tested in the wilderness when he has nothing. The first Adam, tempted and tried when he has everything. The second Adam, tempted and tried when he's weak, 40 days, fasting, physically exhausted. And the first Adam fails under the best of circumstances. The second Adam succeeds and obeys perfectly under the worst of circumstances. And of course he had to. So by this point again, it shouldn't surprise us when a bunch of knucklehead Pharisees aren't able to trap him. But in addition to the clarity, now Jesus is going to begin asking questions of his own. 
Because when I get asked a hard question, I start to fidget a little bit, and I start to process, and I need to take some time, and I start to think through the answers and the ramifications to it. Jesus has never been out of control of this situation, and so now he is uh, going to demonstrate that by asking questions of his own. And the first thing that he says is, show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. If you're going to pay the Roman tax, you're going to pay it in a Roman coin. And we're familiar with the idea of a denarius again by this point in the gospel. It's representative of one day's wage. It would have been able to be held in a single silver coin. And so he says, show me that coin. Now we also know that they're at the temple grounds. And that this particular coin wouldn't have been able to be used to buy your things to participate in the temple worship. Remember, as Jesus cleanses the temple, he drives out the money changers, those who are changing from the currency of the empire into the temple currency, and uh, that might strike us as strange until we realize some things about this Roman currency, because Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is this? He hears the coin, and he holds it up, and he says, whose picture and whose wording is on this coin? And everybody says, Caesar's. They know the coin and they know what's on it. Much like us, their coins were stamped with images and with phrases. What about a picture of the Roman emperor on there at this time was Tiberius? And so the image of Caesar is on that coin, and that alone would have been offensive to the Jews. But beyond that, there were things written on their coins. Things that said whose likeness that was. This is Tiberius Caesar son of the divine Augustus. In other words, this emperor was identified as a son of Augustus Caesar, who was venerated as a god. This was one who was a son of God. You flip the coin over, and there's, a, there's an, image, or an inscription that says Pontifex Maximus, high priest. This man, this Caesar, is venerated as a high priest of the Roman cultic system one who is venerated as a son of a divine God. Now, Jesus is holding this up, and we have to see the irony there. Because he's holding a coin with a picture of someone who claims to be a high priest and a son of God, and standing there holding the coin is the very son of God, who, according to Hebrews, is the great high priest of a new and better covenant. And Jesus doesn't touch any of that. He simply says, whose image is this? Whose likeness is this? And the easy answer that's on everybody's lips is Caesar's. And you have to see the Pharisees just salivating as he says this. Because what is he going to do now? What can he do? You have seen now an image of the gross idolatry that characterizes every bit of Rome. Even on their money, their wickedness, their vile pagan worship is evident. How could Jesus ever say, pay the tax to that? They've got to be thinking that he's going to say, don't do it. You can't do it. And as soon as he does that again, they go and they tell anyone in authority that Jesus is a political revolutionary and their problems are over. That's where Jesus gives his conclusion and it shocks and it silences and it amazes them. And it does that because Jesus commands obedience not in one sphere, but in every sphere of their lives. Whose image is on this? And they all say Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
That is not meant to be complicated. That is not a theologically deep and wide sentence that you have to have Greek training to figure it out. Jesus is saying, pay the tax. Whose image is this? It's Caesar's. Then render. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him in the first place. Caesar wants his coin. Give it back to him. Jesus, you can't mean this. Don't you know what that system represents. Jesus, do you understand how poor these people are? Do you understand how crushed by this system of Rome they are? Do you have any idea what that coin will fund? Do you have any idea what that represents about this whole system? Of course he does. He could probably look around and within two or three minutes find Roman soldiers that were the physical embodiment of Roman oppression over his people. He lived under Rome's taxation. He knew about the rebels that had been brutally crushed. He knew what Rome did to traitors. He knew. He's holding the evidence of the fact that they are a godless, pagan system. But he says, pay the tax. Why? Because that's what the authority placed over you said is owed. See, this text is not deep, it's not long, it's not a broad teaching, it's the foundational teaching for the places where Paul writes in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Well, why? Because there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that are established are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance, not of Caesar, but of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. It's the foundation for what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing what is right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What's he saying? That God establishes government. That God sets their beginning and their end. That God sets the limits of the power of every human institution. Jesus is giving no room for his followers to live in rebellion against Rome. Why? Because he couldn't? Oh, he certainly could. He could have stirred up tens of thousands of people to violently riot against Rome that very day. But he doesn't not why he came. He didn't come to redeem from Rome. He came to redeem them from sin. And before they can go out and begin to even stir up a problem, before the crowd can collectively catch its breath, I think, he moves immediately to the second part of his conclusion, which Although we get hung up on the first part, the second part of his conclusion is much more far-reaching and much more penetrating. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Pay the tax. Submit to authority. But understand where ultimate authority lies and give to him what is due. See, this has nothing to do with money. This passage has nothing to do 
with paying your taxes to Caesar and giving your tithe at the church. It has nothing to do with filling out your 1040 and making sure that you donate rightly to missionaries. This passage has nothing to do with our money, and it has everything to do with our money, because it has nothing to do with our money and everything to do with our heart response toward authority. Give to God the things that are God's. See, he's holding a coin that belongs to Caesar. Caesar had the silver to mint the coin. Caesar had the stamp to put his image on the coin. Caesar built the roads for the coin to travel. Caesar oversaw the empire that protected the coins and the commerce that was there. Caesar had his sphere of influence, and it was so clearly outlined that everybody knew it. So what could I possibly owe to God? That's the question. And the answer is really the same for the Pharisee, for the blind man, for the lame man, for the man, for the woman, for the Jew, for the Gentile, for us today. What do I possibly owe to God? And the answer is nothing short of everything. <laughs> it's the totality of who we are. I don't want to spoil where we're going in a few weeks. But when they ask him what the greatest commandment is, you know what he says. Love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. That's what mankind owes its creator. Total allegiance, total obedience, every minute, every hour of every day. Which means that every moment of my life that I am not loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength, I'm sinning. There are no neutral moments in my life, as much as I might wish that there were. Now, whose image is stamped on you? Whose authority extends not just over an empire, but over all of creation? Are paying taxes important? Yes, they are. Is it a matter of obedience? Yes, it is. But think about the context here, guys. They're coming and they're asking him about taxes as they're actively failing in worship. They are coming and wondering whether they ought to reject Caesar when they are currently rejecting the Son of God. Do you see how laughably and tragically short-sighted their question is? See, should I submit to government? The answer is an easy yes. But the very next thing that I want to know is how far that should go. The church has spent the last couple of years violently tearing itself apart over what it looks like to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the tragedy is that we have become far more preoccupied with the first part of the answer to his question than with the second. We want to know about the politics. And we want to define the politics. And we want to argue about the politics. And there's a place for that discussion. There's a place for right and careful thinking about what it will mean to submit in a God-honoring way to the government that he has placed over us. But it has to be secondary to figuring out what in the world I am called to render to God. And the wonderful thing is that when I get a hold of that second piece, when I'm rightly rendering to God what is his, guess what works itself out? The first part of that, when you get the greater, the lesser falls into place. 
Wonderful examples of this all over Scripture. Sometime this week, go to Acts chapter 5 and read through the apostles' account of what it looks like to live in submission to a wicked authority. The apostles are preaching. That's a good thing. And they're arrested. That's a bad thing. They're put in jail. That's a bad thing. An angel frees them, and they go right back to preaching. That's a good thing. And they're brought right back in and put on trial again. And they say, you cannot do this. They say, we have to obey God rather than men. Some wisdom pops up on the council there, and they're beaten and let go for preaching, for being obedient. The apostles are beaten, and they're let go. And they do not go back to the temple and incite a riot. They do not go back to the people and say, look at the wicked rulers and what they've done. Look at the stripes on our back. Look at the blood on our clothes. Look at the bruises on our bodies. Let us overthrow these wicked men. You know what they do? They leave rejoicing because God had counted them worthy to suffer for His name. Does that make the wicked rulers and authorities correct in what they did? Not for a moment. And you see these apostles beautifully live in obedience to God, even as they cannot submit to the government, but they submit to the authorities even in their punishment and give God glory for the results of that. Well, that's hard. In this context, (laughs) we talk about religion and politics. Two things that you are not supposed to bring up in polite society. Certainly two things that you should avoid as you're watching your Super Bowl parties at some point later today, the world would tell you. And yet, here, religion and politics are exactly the question that's brought before Jesus, and he answers them perfectly. Shouldn't have surprised us. I mean, all we had to do was look at the men that Jesus surrounded himself with. Who do we have here? Simon, known as Simon the Zealot. The Zealots being a political movement that abhorred Caesar and all that he stood for, that hated the idea of taxes and wasn't above killing someone every now and then in the movement. And here you have Levi, the tax collector, willing to turn on and take money from his own people to line his own pockets. And they come together to follow Christ. Why? Because that's what the kingdom does. It radically changes hearts and radically reorients our priorities. Two things, just two things for us to think about today. First one, this is a question of authority. Because more than taxes or whatever you want to put in box A, this bothers us because of our heart response to authority. Because we say, the government isn't worthy of my obedience. You're not wrong. But how far down that list could I go? I've never had a perfect boss worthy of my perfect obedience. I've never been on a perfect elder board. Brandy will tell you, I've never been a perfect husband. My kids will tell you, they've never had a perfect father. And yet Christians are defined by humble submission to authority. Does that mean that we assume that the government always has our best interest at heart? No. Does it mean that we assume that the government always gets it right? Certainly not. Does 
that mean that we stop interacting with the government that God has given us, that we don't vote, that we don't write letters to our congressmen and our representatives? Of course not. The difference is that the gospel and its transformation of our heart simply radically changes how we do those things. It means that we show respect and even honor toward those that we disagree with and toward those that haven't earned it. It means that we don't live in fear that the government will destroy the church and we don't live in the hope that the government will allow the church to flourish. See, because hell can't overcome it and Christ has always been the one that builds it. The problem in this situation was not the politics of the Pharisees or the Herodians. In fact, they were about as polar opposite as you could get in the ancient Near Eastern political spectrum. Now, the problem here was a heart problem, just like ours. Because if I'm honest, I don't really want anyone, Republican or Democrat, progressive, conservative, liberal, independent, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. tragedy is that sometimes the church cloaks a heart of rebellion in political and religious terms. And here's the reality. There's no political safe zone where you will finally be able to live out your faith rightly. There's no conservative or liberal utopia where when you finally elect the right Caesar, then Caesar will enable you to live out your faith. Because here's the reality, guys. I can rage against impediments to my free speech while not having proclaimed the gospel in a powerful way in decades. See how those don't line up. Secondly, not only is this a question of authority, it's a question of priority. We were to read this passage, I think a lot of us might be tempted to read this and say, well, the most important question out of this is to figure out where I draw the line. Tell me where I have to stop obeying Caesar for the sake of obeying God. We could answer that question in about a minute and a half. When submission to Caesar means that you cannot submit to God, then you know where your allegiance lies. When obedience to the state compromises your obedience to the Lord, then you are bound to obey God. That's not the real question. In this passage, that's not the most primary question. primary question is what have I been called to render to God that I'm withholding? Because knowing the line doesn't start with a list of freedoms that are infringed upon. Knowing the line doesn't start with these are the essential elements of a worship service that won't be compromised. Knowing the line begins by giving God what is rightly His What 
which is everything, and then watching how the rest of our lives falls into place. Now, when my first goal is to bring my life into submission under the authority of God, this passage presses down in some very, very practical ways. Because I can get very caught up in my rights, I can get very identified by my politics, and I can be quick to tie those things to my worship with the very loosest of theological strings. The better question is not, has Caesar overstepped his bounds? The answer is a universal yes. It's a fallen system populated by fallen men. The better question is, where do I look at what God has demanded of my life and refuse to render to God what rightfully belongs to him? What worship do I regularly withhold from God? Which of my heart attitudes do I regularly reserve for me rather than surrendering them to my Savior? What passion do I regularly devote to something else when it ought to be devoted to Him? I'll live for God, but I'm going to be an employee on my own terms. I'll work hard as long as the workplace treats me how I deserve to be treated. I'll be a good student as long as the teacher gives us full attention, fair marks, and I enjoy the subject. I'll live differently as long as it doesn't make my relationships too awkward or it doesn't cost me too many friends. I'll go to church, but don't tell me how to live my life the rest of the week. I'll be on the membership list, but don't you dare tell me that I'm called to devote my life to the body of brothers and sisters that God has put me in. See, earlier I quoted 1 Peter 2.15, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. My concern is that over the last couple of years, the church has not done much to silence foolish men. And no, that doesn't mean that the government is always right. And no, that doesn't mean that there is a one-size-fits-all response for every church. And no, that doesn't mean that believers have to unilaterally agree with every step of how we handle the pandemic. But it does speak to a consistent failure of our heart attitude. When the church chooses to stand on political freedom rather than freedom in Christ, we muddy the gospel. When the church talks about following a Savior who is gentle and lowly, and we publicly curse those that disagree with us, we muddy the gospel. When the church says that mankind is made in the image of God and celebrates policy decisions, that kill millions of babies in the womb, we muddy the gospel. When the church makes sure that we have a Christian fish on the back of one side of our car and a Let's Go Brandon bumper sticker on the other, you laugh, look up the origin of that phrase. We muddy the gospel. I know this is hard. Because the easier question for me to ask 
The one that I want to ask is where is the government overstepped so that I know where to stop? It's easy to rally against Caesar. So much harder, so much harder for me to be confronted with my failure to render unto God what is rightfully his. Easy to rally against a wicked government. So hard to surrender everything to a holy God. Brothers and sisters, be reminded, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and that includes every Caesar that ever was, is, and will be. It is your and my glorious privilege to bend the knee now. Let's pray. Lord, I am not humble. We are not humble. We are not a naturally submissive people. Lord, break our hearts of our pride and arrogance. Lord, may we never venerate government, but Lord, let us rightly honor those in authority over us, not for their sake, but for yours. Not because they are worthy, but because you are. Let our response to government be driven by a steadfast and enduring, grounded faith in you, knowing that you set the names, the dates, and the balance of power throughout all of human history. Knowing that you will come again to make and set all things right, and knowing that the church can flourish and thrive in every situation because you promised to build your church. What an amazing thing to know that we can live as obedient thriving believers, bearing the fruits of salvation no matter what is going on politically around us. Lord, fix our limited perspective. We praise you, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.